0: friends, and fellow passionate entrepreneurial teachers. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you another friend that I have discovered through the world of Zettelkasten. Mel Jeffcoat is joining me today to share his entrepreneurial teaching journey. And Mel is a building preservation specialist and a wonder and has a wonderful newsletter entitled industrial alchemy, where he explores transformation, which is the really interesting topic that I'm, I'm looking forward to, to talking about today. So as a quick framing question for our audience, Mel, what do you love to teach and to share with others?
1: Um, well, Stephanie, the thing that I most love to teach and share is the, uh the little tidbits of knowledge and learning that I get from things that people don't typically look at. Like, I like to read old books that are often forgotten. I live in an industrial town in the Rust Belt that has sort of been forgotten by the wider world. Um, And I like to uh, restore historic houses, which, again, They've been neglected for many years and forgotten, but there is value in all of these things. And so what I love to do is find the value and bring it out for other people to see and understand and, you know, learn from and inspire them.
0: Beautiful. And how did you end up here? How did you end up restoring old houses and just where you are today with all of the the things that you're developing?
1: Well, that's a very long story, but i will I will get just the the basics of it. Um, moved to Ohio a long time ago, like uh, seventeen years ago, and bought an old house because that's what I could afford. And over the years, I had noticed that there was a local uh, college program for building restoration, uh, just you know really close by. And so when I finally back in this would have been two thousand and two, sorry, 2011. Boy, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> um, 2011, I had the time, the money to jump into that program, and I started it just to learn how to fix the house that I was in, but it turned out to be a way to earn money. It turned out to be a career. Um, so I worked for all of the local companies uh, doing preservation, and I'm gonna tell you a little story here about how I ended up um, leaving the last company um, and becoming a contractor for a few years. Um, So I was working for this guy who was a very good plasterer and um, I was interested in plaster and I had actually wanted to work for him for years because he had a good reputation. And he was very good, but he had no idea how to teach. Like, he just did things. He didn't know how to break it down and teach somebody else. Uh, Really, the only way he knew how to teach was to demonstrate and then say, try it, and then maybe say, okay, you did this wrong, now try it again. And that's fine. I can learn that way. But the other problem with him was that he had too many projects. So he basically, he needed people who could work alone and be set up someplace, and he goes and works on something else which is great if you know what you're doing, not so great if you're trying to learn. Uh, so I'd been working for him for about a year and there was this one project doing stucco on a porch. I didn't really know how to do stucco, but you know he kept saying, do it this way and I'd try. And he'd come back at the end of the day and either say, that's bad, do it again, or, okay, that's good, but you need to do it faster. <laughs> um, but so I was frustrated already with this job we had a, um, a lift that we had rented to be able to get up to the upper levels of this house. And this lift had problems. Like sometimes it would just stop working. There's controls up at the top and there's controls at the bottom. And sometimes the controls at the top would just stop. You wouldn't be able to do anything, you'd just be stuck. And working alone, that <laughs> didn't work out too well. Um, and so that last day, he had the lift set up on one side of the house, and the ground was really soft over there, and the lift was actually leaning a little bit, which you know you you can't do that. They have to be level. When you start going up high, you're you're gonna get overbalanced. But it was leaning away from the house, and I was working towards the house, and I'm like, okay, I can work with this for a while. Um, and I had actually I'd called him and I said I. This lift isn't right. I don't have any wood to prop it up. And he just basically told me, just deal with it. I don't have time to deal with this. Um, so I was doing as much work as I could. And it finally got to the point where I needed to move further away. And it just, it felt wrong. And there was actually a voice in my head just before I was going to start moving it that said, today's the day that you die. And I said, um, "Hmm, <laughs> you know, I don't like that." <laughs> and so I sort of sat there for a while. And I'm like, "Well, you know, I'm supposed to keep working here, but I really don't want to fall over and die or get maimed." So um, I uh, I came down. I was able to maneuver the thing a little bit and get it so it was a bit more level. But I didn't trust myself at that point to be able to be sure that it was good. And I knew that a former instructor of mine lived in the neighborhood and had that day off from work. It was a Friday. So I gave him a call. He was able to come over and I'm like, just take a look at this thing and, and tell me if I've gotten it level enough and if I'm good to go. And he came over and he said, yeah, I think you've got it. You're fine. Um, and then the control stopped working at the top and He's like, oh, would you want me to to take control and and get you down? And I said, I've got to finish this work. If you could just get me into place, into position, I'll do the work. And if the controls still don't work, I'll call my boss and have him get me down. You know, i got to get this work done. And so he's maneuvering me up into position. And guess who shows up? The boss shows up. And he's angry that there's somebody else there and of course um you know my friend just like oh hey i just stopped by to to check and he just left right away so that but the controls were still set for the bottom so there was there was no um no denying that he had been helping me and the boss was so mad about this he fired me on the spot and to be honest it was the best firing ever <laughs> i was so happy to be alive right and um You know, it was a bad job. I was glad to be done with it. And the thing about those those sorts of voices, I've had these moments in the past where I just suddenly knew something uh, and it turned out to be true. It's intuition or something. And the thing about those things is even as you reflect on them further, they still are true. Like, okay, I didn't physically die that day. Uh, Because I probably because I made some choices not to. But in a way, who I was, the person who followed the rules and, you know, did things, did what what I was told rather than what I needed to do, that person in a way died that day. And in the uh, following months, I worked as a contractor to get some money, I was doing the work on my own but I really started to do things that I wanted to do and that I had been too scared to do in the past. And that has led me to where I am today. That is a fascinating story. I have I have
0: multiple things I want to follow up on there. I mean, there's <laughs> we see it a lot in the martial arts too, like teaching is its own independent skill. Just because you're a master of one thing doesn't mean that you're good at then sharing it with other people, that's, that's its own thing. And then the, the juxtaposition of those two mentors, you know, mentors is a big word, but those, those two teachers where you had someone that was, that was there and willing to support and listen to you, you know, and then the other person that's just like, no, just get it done. You know, it's kind of the difference between an instructor and a teacher. The instructor just tells you do the thing, you know, just trust me and do what I tell you to do. And then the teacher, you know, adapts with you. Um, that, I, my next question was going to be, you know, what made you decide to carve your own path and kind of go your own entrepreneurial way. And I think that that story kind of answers the question. Are there any other moments like throughout your, your journey where you thought about doing your own thing or was it really, was that the defining moment that made you decide and and go be independent?
1: Well, there have been other moments because, um, You know, there was something that you said in your podcast, which when you said it, uh, I just stopped and said, oh, my goodness, this is so true. You said uh, entrepreneurial doesn't mean necessarily being a small business owner because a lot of them just own a job. That is so true. When I was a contractor, I owned a job. And I had, instead of having one boss, I had (laughs) every client was a boss. Um, So that really I thought that was what I wanted, but it wasn't. Um, so you know, for the last five years or so, I've actually I've been working for other people. I've been an employee, but I've also been uh, building up my writing and my teaching and working towards being, uh, well, as you put it, an entrepreneurial teacher. Uh, I wouldn't have used those words before you said them, but they make sense and I it it, it does fit. So um i think honestly it was scott Shepard with with his with his anti net his and that really gave me the push in this direction but the uh the raw materials were there had been simmering away for many years um he just sort of coalesced it
0: so what is the the work that you're doing currently what are your your dreams and goals for what you're building entrepreneurially through your Zettelcast and, and through all of the the stuff. Cause the stuff that Scott Shepherd is teaching us is not just how to write on index cards. It goes a lot farther than that in terms of, you know, the marketing and, and building, basically a building a business online, that's analog based, which is always a fun juxtaposition. Um, but, uh, but what is, what are your goals? What are you building?
1: Um, I want to build a tribe of people who are interested in uh, thinking, really thinking about, um, you know, their own thoughts. And I guess uh, systems thinkers are also what I'm interested in because that's how I see the world in systems and the way that the systems interplay with each other. And so when I'm looking back at old books and old buildings and things like that, they're another way of looking at the world that's different from the way that's popular right now. And, you know, if you, if you come around to a different vantage point, then you see something different. And I think that, uh, being able to share these things that I learned from these unusual sources is a way to help people think. And, maybe uh, come to different conclusions about the world because they have different inputs. And so I'm very interested in people who are willing to really uh, mull over and think about all sorts of weird different things.
0: <laughs> I love that. And that was a really interesting answer because I also know that you're you're into art and you you are artistic. And a lot of the work that you do, restoring old houses, even the way you talk about it, feels artistic and then you just did I'm gonna forget what it was called it was like plan air or something like that the um painting out in nature there was a whole event you just did so I found it interesting that your answer was very left brain systems oriented but then I know that a lot of the work you do gets expressed in a very right brain artistic way I don't know what my question is there but I'm curious what your response is to what I just said (laughs)
1: Well, it's true. Um, I, I think a large part of my life is is figuring out how to find the right connections between those left brain and the right brain ways of thinking, because I do have very strong tendencies in both directions. Uh, and so, I guess the the way is how do you harmonize that without being like bipolar or schizophrenic or something? You know, um, it's uh, it's an ongoing process. Um, so it's the uh, the conflict between chaos and order. You know, you can't have all of just one or the other. You have to have a mix, but finding the right mix is is the trick and the difficult thing. So that's definitely part of the journey.
0: And I think when you find that balance, that's what starts to lead to transformation, which is the the really interesting topic that you're that you're into. Um, and speaking of all the, the old stuff. Where did the love of that come from? Is that something that's always been there or was it literally just moving into this house that kind of sparked this passion for exploring old things?
1: It's always been there because I think the reason is because I was, have always been a voracious reader and I read very quickly, especially when I was a kid and we didn't have a lot of money. We were pretty poor when I was a kid. And so they couldn't, my parents couldn't keep me in books. I mean, buying new books was a very rare thing. So I got whatever library discards, yard sale, whatever, um, anything that looked at all interesting, they'd throw my way. And I had this bookshelf full of things, you know, from the 1800s, and early 1900s. Some of them were more modern. I mean, I was a kid in the mid-80s, so... uh, you know, obviously nothing past then, but, you know, the newer books were a pretty small part of my library. And because I read so quickly, and I loved reading so much, I read them over and over and over again. And so I developed the ability to read the older books, because a lot of times they are written in a more difficult or unfamiliar way compared to the newer books. But I developed the ability to read them very early because that's what I had. And so I've always had that interest. We also watched a lot of old movies. My dad was really into, you know, we watched everything from, you know, the early silent movies and we watched a lot of the old um, uh, comedy duos and teens, you know, the Marx Brothers and the less well-known ones like Wheeler and Woolsey, uh, (laughs) which I loved them. They were great. Um, so, you know, there were a whole lot of, of old influences in my childhood. My dad loves to go metal detecting. Um, we spent a lot of time, you know, going out bottle hunting and trying to find interesting old things. Uh, there was actually, there was a an old dump that was, had been not used for decades. It was from, I think, maybe shut down in the 50s. And we would go there for fun. And it was just, it would all been bulldozed over and it wasn't gross or anything. And you could dig around in there and find old bottles and old figures. And I mean, that's what we did for fun a lot of times. And it was great. I love that. My dad definitely
0: raised me the same way, making sure I saw all the the old stuff. Marx Brothers, we still watch those together. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. So were there any of those books that were significantly impactful or that just kind of stand out from a nostalgia standpoint or anything that was transformational for you as you were growing up?
1: Ooh, Um, well, one that comes to mind, and I still actually have quite a few of these books, and some of them that got lost I've replaced over the years, but um, there was this one book that I found absolutely fascinating as a kid, and it was from, I think, the early 1900s was when it was published. But it was called Fortunes in Formulas. And it was a list of all sorts of things that you could make, um, You know, like varnish or nail polish or cleaning products. I mean, anything you could think of, they had a formula for how to make it. Now, you had to be careful. I, I, didn't, I haven't actually made any of these things, but it was so fascinating to read through it. Um, some of them, like some of the makeup, use things that are toxic. <laughs> so, you know, definitely from a, from a modern perspective, you have to be aware of the things. But it was just so interesting to me to see all of these things that people could just make for themselves and they didn't have to go out and buy. And I don't know, it was just very fascinating. And I love that book so much. I would constantly pour over it. Um, And let's see, in the way of fiction, uh, there was a a great book, it was a children's book um, by Betty Brock, who is best known now, I think uh, No Flying in the House is still in print uh, as a children's book, but she wrote one called The Shades, which was about this magical garden where the shadows were alive, and... If you if you washed your eyes with a, the the water from a fountain, you could see them and interact with them. And it was such a magical book. And I, I'm really sad that that one has been forgotten because it was really wonderful. I love it.
0: So those books both speak to, to alchemy and to magic, which is a word that you've used you know, talking about the area that you live in and kind of uncovering the the transformations and the magic in that area. So Mm -hmm. where does the term or the name for your newsletter industrial alchemy come from? Where does it what does that mean to you?
1: Ah yes. Um so alchemy of course is a an art that is ancient. Um and it is a process of taking a base material, as they call it, meaning uh, a less valuable material, breaking it down into all of its constituent parts, refining those parts, and then putting them back together into something that is valuable. And there are many different kinds of alchemy. Uh, You know, I mean, everybody knows the turn lead into gold thing. Okay, well, uh, that's probably a metaphor, um, but... The process can be used in many different ways. There's emotional and spiritual alchemy where you break down uh, you know, your memories and your experiences and analyze them and then use it to build something new in yourself, a better you. So I chose that to go with industrial because I live in an industrial town uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia. That I mean, it used to be a steel town, it used to be, uh, they used to have glass factories, they used to have pottery factories, there were many different industrial things here on the Ohio River, which are no longer here for the most part. Uh, so, we have sort of these ruins of what was here, and there's been a very long economic contraction here since the 70s, um, and difficult times for people seems to be improving now. It has been for the last 10 years, I'd say. Um, But there's still a lot that can be transformed here. And we can use our past to, and and if we we understand our past, we can use the pieces of our past to build the new wheeling, the new life here. Uh, And I think that that is applicable to other places. I mean, every place has its past, every place has its things that have been forgotten, and that can be sifted through and rebuilt in a new way to make something new. Um, So I think that 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 process is applicable to many different people and places, uh, as well as on a personal level.
0: Yeah, we have a similar thing here in uh Willimanic, Connecticut. It used to be, it was all built on thread mills and it was like thread city. And then all the thread mills left. And now what's left is kind of struggling to go through that same sort of transformation. There's a lot of thread mill buildings along the, the river that have been more recently transformed into apartment buildings and office buildings. So they are finally starting to get some sort of new life instead of just being, you know, a decaying eyesore. Um what are what are some of your favorite transformations that you've seen, either in the houses that you're rebuilding, which we should probably talk about those two, or even just things you've seen, projects you've seen around, you know, the town you live in as things are starting to transform?
1: Oh man, there's too many to count almost because there's there's been so much uh investment and working Uh, with a lot of the local companies and as well as projects for school, I've actually had some small part in a number of them. Um, But, uh, you know, there, we have this huge building. um, It's a Masonic uh, Scottish Rite temple or cathedral is what it's called. And it's, it's massive. And I worked on that a fair bit uh, on the facade and replacing some of the, 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 terracotta that had been damaged with um with new pieces and it has a huge two-headed eagle on the front of it and I was part of putting the wings back on that thing <laughs> and it's like I don't know five stories up in the air uh these huge terracotta wings but um you know it's such a cool building there have been so many buildings that have been restored or are in the process of restoration and um Wheeling, actually, I've read that it has the largest stock of Victorian-era buildings in the country, and it's largely because Wheeling was very, very rich at that time period. Um, There was a period of time where it was actually the richest city per capita in the United States, Um, so there's a lot of stuff, a lot of things, interesting things got built then, and Then in the downturn, the downturn was bad enough that they mostly made it through the sort of, old things are bad, we must build new, because the city didn't have the money to tear things down. (laughs) So they just sort of got left, uh, which is wonderful, because you can always, if you put enough money into it, you can restore something, uh, even if if it's really bad. But if it's been torn down, you're out of luck. Uh, and that that kind of leads me into the the uh, house that I'm working on, the one that I started with, which, which by all all rights should have been torn down. Uh, it was abandoned for probably ten years before I got it, and um, and I mean completely abandoned and neglected for I don't know how long before that. Um, I think the last time it had any major work done done on it was in the seventies. Um, so I think it's sort of been sliding since then.
0: And do you know but, how old it is? Like it when is it was built?
1: Approximately 1920. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's not a particularly fancy house, but I got it for essentially nothing. I paid uh, a couple hundred dollars in back taxes and the transfer fee, and that's what I got it for. Um, and I discovered that once I started taking the drywall and the paneling and stuff down that had been put up in later years all of the original woodwork was still there underneath pretty much there's some of it will have to be rebuilt but most of it was there and it has a mostly intact staircase uh with um you know the fancy newels and you know the open staircase uh which is pretty and that is only missing a few pieces it didn't get all torn apart the way they are in some places so there are a lot of nice little details in there now i've been working on this for several years i've had to gut the entire thing because of, of significant moisture damage uh, to the plaster none of it was salvageable and i'm still working on the structural issues uh, it wasn't terrible but there were a few things that were pretty major um, and those are mostly dealt with. The last major thing is getting a roof on it, which we're under contract, so hopefully that'll be done pretty soon. Um, but it's it's definitely it's a project that requires vision, because anybody who looked at this house would have said, tear the thing down. Uh, and I mean, that's how I got it for free, essentially, because It belonged to a friend of mine. He had picked it up at a tax sale. And then when he was moving out of town, he was trying to sell all of his properties. He couldn't sell this one. It does need significant work. Um, And so basically any amount to pay for it would have been too much. Um, (laughs) uh, But, you know, I just, after walking through it, I saw the potential. And I kind of fell in love with it which is dangerous, <laughs> but um, I saw the potential. I really loved how it was laid out. It's not a big house, but it's it's very nice. It can be very nice in the future. In my head, it will be very nice. Um, so it's it's a very long process getting there, though, and I just have to keep reminding myself of that vision because when you're down in the weeds, it can be hard to uh, to remember why you're doing this.
0: And what is your, your long-term vision? Are you looking to restore it to like a Victorian era vibe or are you going more modern? And then are you hoping to move into it? Or are you hoping to basically do a really long flip and then, and sell it? What are, what are your goals for it?
1: Um, It's, it's actually a little bit later than the Victorian age. Um, so it's not, it's, it would be closer to a craftsman sort of style, although it is not actually. It's it's not really any particular style. It's just a, a um oh whatever they call it, uh, I've forgotten the word, but you know just sort of the native style at the time. Um, but it has a few nice details, and I want to get all of those details brought back out. And um, I am open to options as far as what to do with it. I don't know if I will be moving into it myself, but I have three children, and they're getting older. So it's possible that one of them, if they wish to stick around in the area, will live there. Um, it's also possible that for a time, I may have it as art studios is is something that I had considered doing with it, because it has nice big rooms. Um, and, and the it wouldn't be like rent an art studio to an artist on a monthly basis sort of thing. Nobody around here has the money for that. Um, Just a moment. Ah, Sorry. Um, But I was thinking more of uh, a space that you could rent out like for people who need um, a few days to finish up a big project or a week at a time or things like that. It'd be a space to rent in a short-term way to work on art projects sorry and um or there's even a small room that could be a uh an office for like writing or something
0: that sounds awesome i i love that idea so it kind of a a collaborative you know almost um uh work kind of isn't the greatest example anymore, but that sort of space so you can rent out uh, some room. And then uh, are the rooms big enough that there could even be like someone could rent it out to run a class in that, like a smaller class in that space?
1: Yes, the uh, the downstairs living room um, would be big enough to have a small class. In. <clears throat> and it's got pocket doors to close it off from the rest of the, the rest of the house. Um, So, yes, I see that the first floor is being sort of the first phase in that, of having the larger meeting room, the kitchen would be like the office sort of area, and then the dining room would be like a common room where people could hang out and chat if they're not working, you know, just a community space sort of. Um, And then work my way up to the second floor and there's the two larger bedrooms which could be studio spaces and the small bedroom which could be a small writing office. Um so yeah, that that's that's my vision right now.
0: That would be awesome. I love that. That's that's one of the things that we love to do is kind of build those community spaces where people can come together and and share ideas and have sort of that that third place is the the term that I've heard it referred to, so you've got home and then work or school and then your third place is that other you know community place that you go to whether it's the local coffee shop or you know for us we built Quester's Way um or the dojo or you know an art space like that sounds like a fabulous third place where people can come together and and share ideas and inspiration and that sounds beautiful I love it (laughs) cool all right so I have some not-so-rapid, rapid-fire questions for you for the end. I have to figure out something to call them other than rapid-fire because uh, they're shorter answered questions, but not super rapid. Um, so my first question for you would be, what should people look for in uh, in someone who does what you do? So if someone's looking to find someone to come in and transform their space in some way? How how would you find someone who does what you do?
1: I think the biggest thing to look for is that they have enthusiasm for the same thing that you have enthusiasm for. Um, this is something that I can bring from my contractor days. And I think it's applicable to a lot of different situations like this. You know, In an old building, if you have somebody come in and they're like, ah, oh, these old buildings, you just need to tear off the box gutters and throw up drywall. And, you know, they hate old buildings. You don't want them working on your historic house. You want somebody who's enthusiastic and sees your vision and is going to work towards your vision. So I think that applies to any sort of transformation that you want. When you talk to somebody who's going to help you reach your goal, you want them to be enthusiastic about the same things that you are and that they will help you go in the direction that you want to go.
0: Yeah, I can see the same thing looking at someone who's more of like a nutrition or efficient, uh, a fitness coach, you know, if they're, if you're looking to, for them to help you create a transformation within your body composition, it needs to be in a way that aligns with your, you know, who you are nutritionally. So like I worked with a nutrition coach and it ended up not being a good fit because I'm a vegetarian and he's not an expert in that. And he was he was good at his job and said, after that first initial time, like, you know, I, I'm probably not the right person for you, because I don't have the expertise that's needed. So someone that's honest about being passionate about the same things that you're passionate with. That's awesome. So now what is something what's one thing that you could suggest to our listeners that they could apply in their life today. So it this could be about really anything. Um, but what's What's something in the realm of transformation, uh, some little nugget that people could take with them to help a transformation today in their lives?
1: Okay. Well, I would say that uh, in order to change, you have to change something, right? You can't keep doing the same thing that you've been doing and expect to be able to change, right? Uh, So if you wish to change something, then I would say go find some resource in that area, whatever it is you're looking to transform, and look for something that you've never looked at before, some new way of looking at it. And it may not be the right way for you, but it will at least give you another perspective and help you figure out what the right way is. So look for the weird things (laughs) that you haven't looked at before.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of like that technique of for like drawing where you turn it upside down if you're trying to like copy something over. So just giving yourself that new perspective that's going to kind of scramble your brain a little bit from Absolutely. the way, you, yeah, the way you usually think. All right. And then what's the most valuable lesson that you've learned through your entrepreneurial teaching journey? Um, or one of them? I know the most <laughs> is hard.
1: <laughs> uh, persistence. You know, uh, there's going to be days where you don't want to do the thing and maybe you don't do whatever the thing is, but as long as you keep showing up and keep working at it, you do make progress. And, you know, you never give up. It's never over until you've fully given up, right? As long as you keep trying, you can make progress. You can get there in the end, hopefully. But um, it's, it's useful to look back and realize, you know, even if you didn't feel like you were getting as much work done on something as you thought you were, but if you look back over the year, you can say, oh, well, you know, I actually, I did all of this. I, I went from point A to point B, and, you know, it was a lot of little steps, but they add up in the end.
0: Yeah.
1: So, That's yeah. feedback.
0: Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Persistence and feedback. I like that. And. And I think there's a piece of recording too, like a, you're recording a lot of your progress in what you share on your YouTube video with the restoration of the old house, which means if you get down on yourself, you can go back and look at how it looked a year ago. You have video evidence of all the progress that you've made. Um, so then speaking of your YouTube channel, my final question for you is how can people connect with you and learn more about what you're doing?
1: Um, yeah, well, I have a uh, weekly newsletter um, which you can find at, well, probably the easiest way to find it would be to go to my uh, YouTube channel, actually, which is at industrial alchemy. Um, but, uh, the AL is only done one time. So I N D U S T R A L C H E M Y. Um, so the, the AL at the end of industrial and at the beginning of alchemy gets smashed together. Um, so from there, in the, uh, in the description of all of my videos, I have links to where you can sign up for my newsletter, uh, which comes out on a weekly basis. And I also, we just search for Mel Jeffcoat podcast on your podcast place of choice. Um, although not Apple at the moment, because <laughs> for some reason I can't make an Apple ID, but any of the others, um, you'll find it. And uh, I do that... Well, the goal is every day. Uh, I did it every day in September. Had a little bit of a hi- hiatus here, but now I'm back to doing it every day.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I am a, an avid reader and listener of both of your newsletter and your podcast. And I, I do, I love your storytelling, especially in the podcast. There was one that uh, like about kind of premonitions, I think, or or just like energy, you know, the story about the dog. Um, it was just, I, it's funny. It's one of those things where the details in my memory are blurry, but I remember the feeling and like, I know exactly where I was in the car. It's like, it hit the climax of the story. Like I know where I was on the road. That was just, it was, you are a fabulous storyteller. So I I really appreciate your podcast and I would recommend it as a, uh, a nice gentle listen. I've told you before, I love the, the tone of your voice, the rhythm of the way you speak uh, just is really kind of soothing and calming to listen to. So that combined with the storytelling is fabulous. Uh, So thank you, thank you for doing this with me today. And of course, keep being you because you're doing wonderful things in the world.
1: Thanks so much for the time, Stephanie. I really enjoyed it.
0: Awesome, I will see you soon.